Today, we're gonna to cover a different take on rebalancing your portfolio. It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Restoring order to your financial chaos. Retirement, investing, taxes. You've got financial questions, he's got financial answers. It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Bo, this is one of those things where I got to tell you about the financial planning industry or investment industry is that people try to figure out how they can differentiate themselves Mm -hmm. from everybody else. And sometimes a lot of it is fancy talk that doesn't really do anything. Right. I mean, you can really nerd out on this stuff. And then there's other people that are trying to sell things off of supposedly their their system. So we want to kind of talk about that because you do have the robo-advisors – that are out there, some of them are saying, I think I've even heard people talking about, at a minimum, people are talking about their rebalance once a month, yeah. um, quarterly, annually. Does that add any benefit? I've, I've actually even heard more often. Yeah, I've, I mean, I've that's what... daily rebalancing. And you, you're like, does that, is that better? If rebalancing is definitely something that's needed in the portfolio, is daily better than never rebalancing? Right. So, I mean, there, there's a lot of questions on that. And then, of course, there's always the black box... Um, managers who supposedly have a smarter system to help you understand how to how often you right. ought to rebalance, or they have some type of trigger based upon value and other things that will do it. Is that what they should be doing? Yeah, there's two thoughts, right? So there, there is like this systematic rebalancing, someone who has these smart triggers, and then there's automatic rebalancing where there's no trigger. It's just period certain, time certain, or dollar certain that it just happens. Which one is right? And, and, then, and then if you're not a computer... How should I, managing my portfolio, think about that? What should I be doing? And I wanted to kind of find the common ground. We do this a lot on the Money Guy Show. Remember, we are simple and smart in the fact that I want to find that common ground between the nerdiness of actually looking at the data of what does the research show on rebalancing and then that common ground or comfortable ground of common sense. I mean, sure. how does this actually work with real financial planning? And, and I, this is a great question, and this came through the, on the live stream. And, and I think this is what's great about if you're with us live, you can because sometimes we just take for granted that everyone speaks our language. We had someone probably say, hey, can, can you define rebalancing? Yeah. What does that mean? That's probably a great way to start. So, and also, I want to tell you that we do have, because I have to do some house cleaning before we jump in, okay. if we gave it all in the first, but this is, I want to give a shout out, I was just came back from vacation, I was right. on an anniversary trip um, to Mexico with two other couples, neighbors and former neighbors, and here's what's great when you hang out with me. You hang out with me long enough, you start showing up with topic ideas of what you want me to cover <laughs> during a show, so actually, Drew, who went on my vacation with me, him and his wife, he shows up with this innovations in finance from the Wall Street Journal. And the, this one, a better way to think about rebalancing. Okay. So I, I, I took, you're going to see, we cover a little bit about this article that was written by, how, how would you say that name, Bo? You're always better at that than me. Uh, Meyer Statman. So Meyer Statman, we're going we're to take him as a contributor mm-hmm. on this. So Meyer, thank you so much for your thoughts. So we'll be covering that. And then I couldn't help myself. I know this is not... I mean, it could have a section on rebalancing, but it's just something that's near and dear to my heart. And brand new, hot off the press. This, this came out yesterday. I mean, we're live streaming this on the second, Tuesday the second. That's right. Um, but this came out actually yesterday. And um, Sarah, I don't know if you can see it. Sarah Stanley, you know, she is obviously Dr. Stanley's. Mm-hmm. Daughter, daughter. Yep. and she has continued Dr. Stanley's work. And um, Sarah has always, uh, her and her husband have been, you know, friends of the, the show. And 
this is a bully tactic as well as an excitement <laughs> tactic is that we want to have Sarah on the show. And she's sure. already agreed. It's just that I'm hoping that if we go ahead and start hyping this enough, I can convince them to come to Nashville yeah, and right. let's do an in-person, but we'll see what happens. But um, if y'all didn't know, Sarah has updated and done a lot of new research. I can't wait. I have not read it yet, but I can't wait to get into That's it. Right. So I thought that I'd put that out there. Um, also, just real quick in the fact that if you guys have not given us your email address, we did a show. Um, the last show we did, we actually had Retirement Manifesto, the Retirement Manifesto, Fritz on. And we had a deliverable of the Ten Commandments of Retirement. And, I mean, that show went over really well. Right. So we'd encourage you, give us your email address. Go to moneyguy.com, give us your email, because we're going to be creating more and more deliverables that you'll get based upon signing up. Yeah, and if you're somebody who says, whoa, whoa deliverable, I don't. I don't remember getting a deliverable. I didn't, I went to the website. I read the show notes. I didn't say that. It's not on the website, and it's only available on the Monday following the release of our show. We have to have your email address. All you have to do is sign up, let us have it, and we're going to send you guys templates, spreadsheets, useful tools that go along with our shows to hopefully add value to your financial lives. And then more and more of you guys are connecting through to us from YouTube. Um, you know, Still, we're we're a podcast that has progressed beyond podcasting where we also do video now. If you haven't subscribed to us on YouTube, we'd, we'd strongly encourage you. And then I'll go ahead and let the cat out of the bag. We do have a ticker now that is tracking that. Um, so it's always fun when you watch the live shows to, to see those numbers increase. And then also every time you see a new show come out, you'll see how those numbers are changing. So, and you can see we were very ambitious. We bought the seven figure <laughs> Um, maybe we should have done the six one, but no, we, we're gonna get we did seven numerals, so that ought to be interesting. So let's jump into this. Bo, you asked the question. We'll answer it. What is rebalancing and what's its purpose? Sure. Now, um, I have my thoughts, but you picked on me in show prep. You said, good thing you're covering this topic since we all know that you know when it comes to who's actually hitting the execute button – it's more of us guys in the trenches. So I, you picked on me about that. So I'm going to give you the chance to go ahead and flex then if, you, sure. if you're saying I'm getting old and, and not hitting the execute button as much as I used to. Yeah, so in its, in its simplest form, rebalancing is really getting your investment allocation back to the appropriate target. And a real easy way to think about it is if you're supposed to have a 60-40 portfolio and one piece of that moves differently than the other piece, you may very quickly turn into a 65 35 portfolio. Now, when you say, because I, I, I like to keep this simple and the smart. When you say 60-40, I want to make sure, because we have we have people of all ages, sure. of all education levels with their finances. A lot of times when we talk about asset allocation, we're going to speak in very broad terms. Mm -hmm. But when we talk about asset allocation, we could be going as detailed as talking about how much you have in international, how much you have in real estate, how much you have domestically between large companies, small companies. Right. I mean, you could bonds, I mean, cash, those are all different asset classes. But when you hear somebody talk about 60-30 or 70-30, 60-40, it's always going to add up to 100. They're usually talking about risk assets versus conservative mm -hmm. assets, correct, Bo? Right. I mean, when you throw those numbers out there. That's exactly right. Um, and what we're talking about when we say risk assets, when, you, when we talk about like a 60-40, when you say 60% is going to be risk, they mean stocks. Mm -hmm. They mean that probably equities, whether it's you know real estate or something, but they mean you're going to have equities right. um, or on the risk spectrum. And then the conservative stuff might be bonds. Sure. You know, And when I say like real estate, you might be buying REITs or right. even buying straight up real estate, yep. but that, wouldn't, that would take out the equity side of it. But 
it's interesting to think about it from a risk versus a conservative side. So what rebalancing means is that you you sell the things that have gotten above the allocation that you want in there, and you buy the things that are below the allocation you want. So that's kind of what rebal- what rebalancing is in sort of its simplest form. So then the next question you ask, Brian, is why should I rebalance, or why is that important yeah. well, to rebalance? I mean, think about it. You, you buy a 60-40 portfolio, meaning 60% stocks, 40% bonds, if we're doing it in this simplest form. Sure. After we have a financial market like we've had, it wouldn't be uncommon, even if the bonds never lost a dollar, you could wake up and your portfolio could be very quickly be a 70-30 split, meaning because the stocks have gone up, you've got a 70% of your assets in stocks, 30% right. in bonds. And what does that mean? You know, that's one of the things we're going to cover today is that I think under traditional terms, mm-hmm. you would automatically rebalance sure. just because you'd want to immediately get it back to a 60-40 split. That's more of the traditional take. We're going to talk about it how in the Wall Street Journal article, it mentions, piggy bank's a prettier picture, that, that um, you know, maybe that's not necessarily sure. the, the right action. So, um, that's something we want to make sure we go through. But there are some some side effects to rebalancing. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be expensive. And there, there's several things. It can create more taxes. It can create transaction costs. And there's also the time and labor of doing a rebalance. Um, and, and then I also, I thought it was interesting, is that a lot of research has come out. I, I want to kind of talk about that. What is, let's talk about it in the, before we get into the nuts and bolts details, what is Vanguard, because they did a whole research sure. study, what does Vanguard say rebalancing adds to the portfolio? Yeah, so Vanguard did a really interesting study. Now, now the study was a lot broader than rebalancing, and this is back in around 2012. They've done a bunch of studies since then to update this, but the one that we really loved was back in 2012, and they were trying to quantify how much uh, value working with an advisor could potentially add to your portfolio. So they had a bunch of different metrics that they used to measure that. Well, one of the metrics that they use to quantify how an advisor can help is the value added to your portfolio from systematic or strategic rebalancing. And according to Vanguard, they equated a solid rebalancing strategy to potentially adding up to 0.35%, so almost one-third of 1% per year, to your total investment performance that's over the long term, right? So that's long term, that could add up. Pretty substantial. Uh, even and then you know just I thought that was interesting. If you if you if you factor in asset location, which we'll talk about in a second, because in our opinion you can't yeah. have rebalancing without asset location, that it actually pushes that an increased value up to over one percent per year, just from those two mechanisms of managing your portfolio well. And those are t- just more tools in your bat belt of making sure you're maximizing what's going on with Perfect. the investments. So one of the things I talked about in show prep, Bo, was I said. Well, what's the industry standard? Sure. I mean, what what is the industry standard? I mean, is there is there something out there? Yeah, what's so interesting is you actually asked me that question. Hey, but what's the industry standard? And I kind of looked around. I'm like, well, I know how we do it, and I know our philosophy, but what is the standard? Because the game has changed a little bit. There are now robo-advisors. There are now algorithms. There's, there's uh, quant trading that takes place. So I went and kind of asked Google, you know, what's the standard? Because Google knows everything. Let's just agree <laughs> on that. What's the standard for rebalancing? And this is what I found. There is no standard yeah. anymore. If you ask 100 different people about what the appropriate way to rebalance is, you're likely to get 100 different answers, which makes it really, really complicated to figure out what makes the most sense for you. Yeah, and it, that's where I think we can hopefully be that common sense that comes into it. So let's go ahead and bring in this article. Sure. Because I wanted to bring up what makes this article, because it is in the section called Innovations in Finance. What mm-hmm. makes this innovative? And the thing that I thought is that 
traditional rebalancing is exactly what we'd already talked about is that if you had a 60-40, time goes by, just say it's a quarter, whether it's a year, but just a, a certain period of time goes by, the portfolio, because of stocks going up or stocks going down, but the, the, the allocation gets out of wonk, sure. gets cattywampus. Um, gets what? Let's just keep moving, because you know I probably said that all wrong. You make me all insecure when I mispronounce things. Well, I've never heard the word but, cattywampus. I'm assuming you pronounced it well. I just is cattywampus. I mean, that's out of out of out of out of balance. I, I didn't. I'm, I'm I mean, a, we are doing a show on rebalancing, <laughs> so a word like cattywampus seems like enough. it would be very. You know, even the sound of it sounds out of balance. So the fact is, it's it needs to be adjusted. So traditionally, you would just. From a you know standpoint of time, mm-hmm. time would be your indicator. You would rebalance. Sure. Well, the article that was in the Wall Street Journal said that no, we're not. You're not going to base it off of time. We're going to base it off of wants. Okay. What are the wants of the of the person that is trying to has the goal of rebalancing? Sure. And what well, here's what I thought was very interesting about this. It took something that's very time based as an analytical mm-hmm. concept. If you make it wants based. That's very behavioral. Sure. It, it completely puts it on its ear in the fact that instead of thinking about from an analytical standpoint, it's now becoming goals-based sure. of what do you want to have happen behaviorally. Yep. And that way, because here, here's what was – and this is because – and I don't mean to get you in trouble because we, we know – We're live here. If you uh, say something to get me in trouble, that's not going to be good. You weren't impressed with that article. Uh, I, um. I'm, Mir, I'm sorry. <laughs> so, it, it was not my favorite. So, and I don't mean to article. put you on the spot, but here's what I do like about it. I'm always looking for, when I'm thinking about any financial concept, I'm trying to think about how is this useful in helping me educate somebody or to make somebody more successful. And when you tell me something is behavioral-based, because what is the biggest limitation with the average investor? It is definitely behavioral. 100%. It's easy to tell somebody, just go buy the S&P 500, and if you do it, historically, you'd be great. But sure. we know that there's this little thing in the background that causes all kind of problems, and it's called human nature. Sure. Human nature is greedy, but human nature is also very fearful. Mm-hmm. So people are – I think it connects with them when you think about the behavioral side of it. So when this article was written, there's two components of the goals base. There's two things. He breaks it down to very simplified things. And I, th- I think what I like about this, right? So while I didn't love the whole article, I, I do like that I think it allows you to have this overlay that allows you to stick with it. Because really, when you think about rebalancing, just purely academically, there are three distinct benefits that you most often cite for why you rebalance. Okay. The first is it naturally creates a mechanism where you buy low, sell high. That's true. Right? That's kind of the first piece That's of true. it. That's true. You know, if you're just rebalancing, you sell the things that have done well, you buy the things that have not done well. That's how you get back it's to It's self-correcting It's self-correcting of, right. of your portfolio. The second thing, and this is where I think the article was brilliant, is that generally speaking, rebalancing allows you to keep your allocation where it should be, meaning it allows you to keep your risk in check. Yeah. If you're supposed to be a 60-40, then getting back to a 60-40 keeps it in check. This actually uh, this defines risk a different way yeah. and more of a behavioral way, which I think was beautiful. And then the third thing that he doesn't touch on as much that we'll end with is it does allow you to tax manage your portfolio. We'll yeah. talk about that with asset location. So academically, those are the three things that rebalancing does. This is a very different intellectual approach to how you should think about that. And what I like about this one is this one makes it make more sense in the real world. Well, it, I think it, it creates that bridge. I'm always looking for ways to connect with people who maybe don't traditionally 
understand personal finance or they think they want to go a different way. And we've had a prospect. I'll go ahead and say this. We had a prospect who came to us that had a multiple seven-figure portfolio. Well, not even an old guy. He was my age, so I don't consider him old. You might consider him older. but <laughs> And the portfolio was 100% in cash. And the reason it was 100% in cash is that, and now realized from a – a vocational standpoint, this gentleman made a lot of money. Sure. So um, that that seven-figure portfolio was strictly on 100% of his behavior of saving money, but he was not going to invest outside of cash. Right. And, and he never became a client because I never could convince him that he ought to go move away from his aversion to this risk. Sure. So when I read this piece where it talked about the behavioral side of it, it really kind of connected because I, I thought it was a tool that we might be able to use in the future. So here's the two things in life, the two goals-based things that the author used as the motivation to think about for rebalancing. Number one is you have two things. Is One is not to be poor. So somebody who is older and scared or somebody who's very risk-adverse, mm-hmm. their whole fear is I don't want to be poor. And I don't want to run out of money. And, and, if I, and if I go take too much risk or I do something, I'm going to be poor. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's one goal-based thing. The other side of it is I want to be rich. The other is to be rich. Right. So a person that wants to be rich is like, well, we got to grow. we yep. got to get, the, get the money. The army of dollar bills has to be working for you. So those two goals are in complete conflict with each other. And, and by the way, being rich, we're not talking about like Robin Leach. We're talking about this is someone who wants to do the things they want to do when they want to do them, the way they want to do them. So it's things like paying for college, yeah. stopping working, buying a vacation, whatever the case may be. It's just being able to do with your money the things you want to do with your money. And, and, and that's a good point because when you say one is not to be poor, not to be poor means you're not taking no risk. It means that you have enough money mm-hmm. to provide an adequate retirement income. Right. You're financially independent. And I think that's a good point to point out is because, and this, is a, this, this example was made in the piece as well, is that you could say, uh, you know, I don't want to be poor, so I'm going to go put all my money into a money market but that's horrible. That doesn't yeah. mean uh, putting all of your money, in, like this gentleman I was talking about, is not taking away the risk that's of the portfolio. Right. Because we all know if you put all your money in the, the uh, a money market, yes, you've taken away market risk, but your purchasing power very much could be in risk by inflation. There's all kind of variables that could come into play. It, it, so it's it's a, a less risky asset, but it's riskier in the long-term well, I, goals. I, I think you said that perfect. What the article really mentioned is that you have – a much lower risk of being poor in the short term, but a much higher risk of being poor in the long term. And exactly. it's where you weigh that. And I think, I think that was a great way to look at so it. So let's, let's dig deeper into this goal-based approach because it is kind of unique. And then we're going to bring it back because you guys, I know this stuff gets somewhat nerdy, but I want you to know this, that we're going to bring it back to tell you kind of what the best practices or what the money guy take is sure. on it, what you should be doing with your portfolio. So hang in there with us as we kind of go through this this goal-based approach before we kind of bring it back and marry the two concepts together. Um, So you have the first group, which is a young saver trying to build assets. So when you have a young saver, their goal is is that their first objective is to be rich. Mm -hmm. The second objective is not to be poor because the rich overweighs the be poor. So they're going to have the majority of their portfolio, probably 80% of the assets in riskier stock growth type assets. The 20%, which is the conservative, is going to be primarily their income, mm-hmm. you know, because they are. Because remember, the good thing about when you are working is that when the markets get beat up and things, you always go, 
I'm still working. Right. I have my income. So yep. you have yourself to rely upon. And then, of course, the the, conser- the the conservative part, the not be poor part, is also buying into bonds right. or things like that. So what happens is is that if you're somebody who's who wants to focus your young saver and you want to build on this, if things continue to grow, let's just say that the bonds don't necessarily go down in value, right. but the stocks go up. If you had, because of your income and because you allocated that 20% to, to bonds, just because you got out of whack at, say, maybe it's 85 15 sure. because the stocks grew, you might not need to rebalance because the level that you had there as protection with, between your income and the mm-hmm. fixed income was enough that you could let it keep growing. That's right. And that's what this this is kind of unique in the fact that you wouldn't do that automatic rebalance. Yeah, and this is what so, – so that was a lot – and and I'm I'm not as smart as you, right? So I'm gonna go ahead and throw oh, that out you, there. So it was difficult for me to track on the article, but I started thinking about it in common sense terms. I'm I'm gonna use round numbers because I can do the math uh-huh. in my head, right? If you had a million dollar portfolio and you determined that an eighty twenty was the correct mix, and that twenty percent of that million dollars or two hundred thousand dollars should be in the conservative side, just because the portfolio goes up in value, yeah, and your portfolio grows to one point two, one point three million dollars. So long as your 200,000 stable base stays there, it's going to be a smaller percentage. But if that's like your comfort level, your not be poor level, that, that, the, reason you're, or the reason you're not having a rebalance is because the dollar figure is staying where you kind of had assigned it. That's really what he's saying here. Well, let's go the other way because I, I already, I will tell you, my spidey senses are starting to kick in a little bit is that, man, this could get dangerous really quick. I love... The narrative that this creates, because it lets you communicate with people who might be thinking about risk in a different sure. way. But this, this from an analytical standpoint, could get dangerous. But let's let's flip it over. And let's go to the other side. Let's talk about the retiree. Okay. The retiree is obviously their first objective is to not be poor, right. meaning they want to have a good retirement. They want to take too much risk. And their second objective is to be rich. Mm-hmm. You know, because now they they've given up on swinging for the fences. They're trying to hit singles for the rest of their life. They don't need to go find the next. Facebook, Google, Apple, whatever the stock is out there. So they might very well have a portfolio of 80% bonds or conservative Mm -hmm. assets and 20% growth since its objective is is much smaller. So if we base it off your same system, if we had a million dollars and we realized that 800,000 was going to be in conservative assets and then 200 200, was going to be in growth, if it grew to 1.1, you're because of the stock, or yeah, we could say 1.1 1. 1. 1. to keep yeah. it simple. You're saying that 800 would let them keep it rolling. I, I felt like that's what I was hearing in this article, and, and like that does make sense because remember, the first objective is we know what our number is to keep us safe, to not be poor, and the fact that we have this 800,000 that's keeping us safe, letting us sleep at night. And just because the stocks have gone from 200000 to 300000 it lets that second objective of becoming rich kind of percolate and work, that's right. let those assets keep growing. So that, that, that's a cool way. That's a cool narrative. Mm-hmm. I like what it does, and I think it is definitely useful. But I think we have to talk about what does that mean in reality. Yeah. Yep. Um, we talk about, remember, rebalancing in some terms is to, it's kind of like pruning a, a, your favorite fruit tree or your blackberry bush, like, uh, you know, blackberry, blueberry bush that you have in your backyard is that, you know, sometimes you have to trim things back 
so that you can get better growth, you know, get better future mm-hmm. long-term growth. And and what I mean by that is is when you have periods in reality what happens with rebalancing is that the, in theory and you said this at the beginning Bob, but I think it's worth repeating is if you have outsized performance like the stock market mm-hmm. we know trees don't grow to heaven. I mean you, you, stock markets go through cycles where it very well you could have two to three down years every decade. Right. So it's nice when you get through those irrational periods if you have a process that pulls, like if the market makes 30%, wouldn't it be nice if you have some of the, a system that pulls some of those gains down and puts them into the undervalued assets sure. or the assets that now are out of, out of proportion, right. meaning they're underweighted? Um, that, under this system... I mean, you could see how this thing could get really crazy. Could you could really very crazy, well, like yeah. an eighty twenty, could very easily turn into a ninety three seven, yeah, very quickly. Now, you, I worry, and here's where I'm playing, and I'm just talking this out loud with you, Bo. This is not in the notes. Sure. We talk about this all the time: is that you get to a point, and this is why it's important to have a financial plan, mm-hmm. is because it's not all the nuts and bolts of what your asset allocation could be. There is going to come a time where you look at it and realize I've kind of won the game. Yeah. You're, so my exactly goal is now: how do I not screw this thing up? That's right. And and I still get reminded: it's easy to forget now because 2008 was a decade ago. We're seeing that, by the way, when we run proposals for prospects and, and brand new clients, one of the discussion points we've had to talk about here recently is all the scary data is falling off because it was 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Now, does that mean that we're never going to have another 2008 or a bad correction? No. It just means we've had I, – I, I consider it part of the pluck effect where when you pull you know, something that we were so bad, the market, because it was called the Great Recession, mm-hmm. it was the worst downturn since the, the, the Great Depression, right. that the market got its teeth kicked in so bad that it makes sense that we've had this prolonged recovery, this extended bear, I mean, bull market. That, that kind of connects the dots on my common sense. But that means that at some point, I don't know when it is. I don't want you to think this is me trying to sell you some fear-mongering newsletter because sure. I'm telling you six weeks from today the market's going down. Nobody knows that stuff, so don't pay attention. But you can start thinking, hey, I want to make sure my allocation is set up so that when the next downturn does come, that I'm not left holding the bag. That's right. And so if you figure out that your retirement plan requires this and that you are – 55 or, you know, and and truthfully, if you're younger, you get to have, and that's why your allocation is going to be more aggressive, but you need to have all the different components working together instead of just knowing whether it's going to be, I'm going to rebalance quarterly or I'm just going to make it goals-based. I mean, do do you see what I'm saying there? Build the bridge for me a little more. There's a marriage between the two, and this is a really easy example. And we we talk about this with, with prospects all the time because uh, when you talk about portfolio management and portfolio construction, there are two pieces of risk that you have to consider, risk tolerance and risk capacity. How much risk are you comfortable with that you can still sleep at night? That's your risk tolerance. And then risk capacity, how much risk does it make sense for you to realistically take on? And this is the real easy way that, that we describe this to folks. Let's assume that tomorrow you have a $10 million portfolio. Right. It's real easy to not screw up with $10 million. I mean, it's going to be kind of hard to run out of that money. So there are two bodies of thought there. One is I don't need to take any risk because there's no point. I don't need it to grow. It's going to provide for me for the rest of my life. The second is I can be as aggressive as I want to be with that because even if I lose half of it, I still have 
$5 million. Both of those answers are right. That is true. And that's what's really interesting about the It has to be management. now be truly, now instead of just being goals-based, it needs to be financial planning-based. That's exactly right. Because, and, and I thought, I will give credit to the article. It talks about how there was an older lady who, if you looked at her and said, what's her needs, you would think that it was to be rich because she was only living off of a, a portion. She right. was much more aggressive than she was supposed to be. But then you find out later that she gave just seven figures to her favorite charity. Her mm -hmm. desire to grow was to fund some of the the organizations sure. that she was very passionate about. And this is just like you have other people who just do not want to have any type of risk because they just they feel like it's not worth it for them. So those things are definitely, there is a tight, I always get that visual of somebody walking a tightrope between risk and reward of figuring out what they need to That's accomplish. Right. So I, I think it's interesting. What, what's, what's cool if you did a goals-based system is that, you know, that would probably be great for somebody like 2009 because mm -hmm. we've had a great extended bear, right. I mean, bull market from 2009 all the way through now. So you're probably loving it if you never rebalanced yeah. it. Um, if you have a systematic rebalance, you know, you're probably loving the fact that you did that in 2007, right before mm -hmm. we had the collapse of 2008. You're even liking it at the beginning of 2009 because right. it made you do, at the end of 2008, you got that rebalance beginning of 2009. But let's kind of talk about what we do getting in the nuts and bolts sure. of it, the nitty-gritty. I like to give people actual details. I want people to know the research shows because there's a whole research report that, that Vanguard did is that should you do this daily, should you do it monthly, should you do it quarterly, should you do it annually? Do you think they, there's a difference between those? Uh, w yes. I don't, I don't know the answer to that question. I'm going to say yes. It's very it's, – it's almost unmeasurable. I mean, if you really? actually, the research shows that you choosing the time as your, your indicator to rebalance. That's why when somebody is pitching you, um, whether it's a system or whether it's a professional, and they tell you they do automatic rebalancing, if they're basing that off of just time, I don't know that it adds as much alpha. I think having, a, I think the 35 basis points that you mentioned at the beginning of the show, mm -hmm. Bo, that there is just having a principle and having an indicator a why of why you're doing rebalancing can add that alpha, but just saying we're going to do it once a month doesn't necessarily add value. The, the, it's got to be tied to your financial plan and the goals and looking at the allocation as a whole. And then the other thing you have to think about it is it very much depends on, uh, one, there are trading costs for rebalancing. Yeah. So if you're using funds or ETFs or stocks or whatever you're investing in that have charges when you trade, every time you rebalance, it's triggering charges. So a great solution there might to be used no-load funds or commission-free ETFs. The second thing is, is if your assets are held inside of a taxable account, when you rebalance, if you're doing it well, there's a chance you're triggering taxes. Well, the two things in your portfolio that you get to control, you can't really control what the market does, but you get to control what you pay in fees, you know, commissions, trading charges, and what you pay in taxes. Sometimes systematic rebalancing to go from 20.2% back down to 20% yeah. might not make the most sense because you, of those you things. You make the point that once a year rebalancing is just as effective if not even better than doing it daily or monthly because you're saving so much in those transa right. co transaction costs as well as just the manpower of having to do that system. That so correct? I think that, that dispels a big myth out there. So if somebody's telling you they're doing it daily or monthly, 
that probably is just as effective if you're doing it annually. Mm-hmm. Um, talk about a little bit about what do we do, Bo? Because it's more if we don't do it annually, and we're not even. It doesn't have to be like on the fifteenth sure. of this month. We're going to do it. What's what's kind of the process that we're doing with our, with our clients? Yeah. So this is this is uh, something we actually learned from Uncle Warren. Uh, and we took this from him. We think the way he describes this is really, really well. And what he tells folks in his letter to shareholders, he says that he is a money manager. He's not really a money manager. He's an owner of businesses, but he is a money manager. He gets paid for the quality of his decisions, not the quantity of his decisions. And That's so we an kind of subscribe to that thing. So for every one of our client portfolios, we're looking at their allocations every quarter, right? So we're kind of reviewing allocations every quarter. If you ask us what our stated rebalancing policy is, we look to rebalance portfolios twice a year, meaning we're looking at portfolios with a specific purpose of rebalancing twice a year. Does that mean that we're placing nope. trades twice a year? Absolutely not. Uh, there's a lot of rebalancing that had you done that in 2013, 14, 15, 16, there's a lot of, you know, momentum is the technical term, but, but there's a lot of return you would have left on the table by not doing that or by doing just a fixed strategic static allocation. Well, and, and that's what the Vanguard research shows, that there's a threshold of change that's that you right. need to take into account too. So it ne- not only needs to be goals-based, but think about the threshold of change. If you're looking at, when you look, like we said, we systematically try to make sure from a, at least a quarterly to semi-annually, we look at the allocations and make sure that they reflect the goals and the risk and all the other concerns that a client has, but that doesn't mean a trade is actually being placed because if you see a tweak of 1%, 2%, the threshold might not be big enough to see value in just making the change for the total portfolio. That's so exactly right. um, you got to pay attention to those bands of threshold of difference, you know, because there's a big difference, like you said, of something appreciating by half a percent versus something having appreciated five or even 10% That's from, exactly from right. where it was. Uh, let me make one, let me throw one other just wonky thing in there when you think about rebalancing. We use the very uh, easy example of a 60-40 portfolio. Yeah. And it goes from 60-40 to 65 right? Well, the assumption that you're making there is that when you rebalance, you're rebalancing either from risk to off-risk or from off-risk to risk. A lot of times when we approach rebalancing, it might be inside of those spectrums. So we might be rebalancing domestic exposure for international exposure or vice versa, Mm -hmm. selling off international buying domestic. That's not actually affecting the 60-40 split. That's affecting something inside of those splits. So you have to think of rebalancing on the big macro portfolio level because just because equities might be overvalued does not immediately mean that bonds are undervalued, especially in a rising rate environment like what we're in now. So you have to get creative in terms of not only what are you selling, but what are you buying? Because you have to kind of make that decision right on both sides if you're going to make sure your portfolio is structured appropriately for your circumstances as well as what's going on in the broad economy. Um, I want to kind of close down with the why sounds like it's the driving factor of things. Mm-hmm. You know, this is why your asset allocation, your rebalancing strategy all needs to be implemented with your overall financial plan, which takes into account your goals, your age, your risk tolerance. All those things are interrelated. One thing I thought that was buried in the, the, our research when we were doing show prep, and you said it, and I, th- I don't know if everybody caught it, so I felt like I'd kind of bring it home and, and, and draw attention to it, Bo, as you said at the beginning that in that, you know, whether I think Morningstar calls it gamma, mm-hmm. Vanguard calls it alpha, oh, that's right. of what is your financial advisor, where do they add value? You said that the, the number for rebalancing was 0.35%, but if they took into account asset location, it yeah. sprung up to 1%. That that's 
a point six five or sixty five basis points that comes back to the asset location. That's right. And that and I felt like that is something that when we talk to people, I think very few people are paying attention. So I, I know it's it's kind of like a cousin of rebalancing when we talk about location. Right. Let's talk to them because this is something, guys, that a lot of you, because here's, here's what I want you to think about. We talk about diversification. That's what, when you talk about mm-hmm. asset allocation, you're talking about diversification. But something that doesn't get a lot of attention is your tax diversification. That's right. I mean, you have different pots of money. If you think about, I mean, it, it's so funny is I, I, I got a call from a client because somebody you know in her community is all nervous about these RMDs because mm-hmm. they're getting older and they got RMDs and they're trying to figure out oh my goodness what does that mean because it's it's making my ta- my social security more taxable it's yep. making my medicare payments go up and i'm sitting there thinking well this is you know a strategy if you have somebody who's taking account of asset location when they're younger mm-hmm. you might not have these fears right. on RMDs required minimum distributions when you get older and and, it, and we also see it with younger people is that you'll see people who have it's not uncommon for you to have all these savings opportunities with your employer where they you can have free matching mm-hmm. so all of your money ends up being in your employer plan like a 401k a yep. 403b but you don't have any taxable money. You don't have any tax-free money. So, Bo, walk them through when we talk about tax location. What's some of the biggest benefits and some of the biggest tools that we see people that they should take advantage of? Yeah, so, you know, one thing to think about is, you, you know, you, you have your overall asset allocation, you know, how your portfolio should be invested across different investment types. But those different investment types don't all behave the same. Some of them uh, pay off ordinary income, like bonds. They spit off income to you. Some of them don't spit off a ton of income at all. They're more based on capital appreciation. Some of them distribute capital gains. So each of the investments... And some have dividends, which has right. a better tax rate. So each of the investments behaves differently. Well, the accounts that you house also behave differently. Yeah. So uh, IRAs or 401ks have a different tax circumstance than Roth IRAs, and those have a different tax... They grow uh, tax-free. Roth grow tax-free. <laughs> Ta- taxable accounts grow at qualified tax rates, you know, long, long-term capital gains rates. And so your ideal scenario is you want to make sure that as you're building up your three pots, right, as you're building up your 401k, as you're building up your Roth assets, as you're building up your taxable assets, you are monitoring the types of investments that you hold in each. It's not uncommon for when you first start out, maybe uh, you sell a business or you sell a piece of land or something happens, your parents leave you money, whatever, and you have a big taxable account, right? And that's what you start your life with, $100,000. Well, there's a chance that that taxable account is going to hold inefficient stuff in it because you don't have a 401k built up or Roth assets built up. And so one of the things that you do is as you do build up your tax buckets, as those buckets start to equalize and as you build assets in each one of them, you can control what your asset location actually looks like. And when you get to retirement, if you do have these three distinct tax buckets, you get to pick and choose what you pay in taxes. And we had that conversation with Fritz last week about just how powerful that can be. So when you're younger... If you pay attention to tax location, it helps you minimize taxes on what gets distributed out to you every year. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, just telling you where the rubber meets the road, it's nice that the ordinary income type assets like bonds are put into your tax deferred, like your retirement accounts. It's nice if your 
fast-growing, appreciating assets go into something like your tax-free Roth account. So That's hopefully what it gets real exciting. You can stick it to the government legally, yep. legally later because you have all that hyper compounding yep. growth. And then you try to put a kind of a mix between what you need in liquidity mm-hmm. as well as what has favorable tax treatment like dividend paying stocks. Um, and and th- you can put those in growth because capital gains are favored tax yep. treatment as well. You can put that stuff in your taxable account. That can kind of be your catch all. But it's really helpful when you're younger because it helps you minimize the income that's being thrown off from your portfolio. It helps you when you get older because you can essentially, once again, legally, potentially, manipulate your tax rate in retirement. So if you're one of these fire people and you think you're going to be leaving the workforce at 45, at 50, at 55, or 60, any time between, you know, before 70 and a half, you have the potential to be talking about Roth conversion strategies and other things all based upon tax location. So one of the key things I want to make sure we get out there to you guys is that when you're younger, there's a simple solution. You don't even have to get into all this minutia and overwhelm yourself. I want you to focus when you're younger on building up enough foundational assets so they can start working for you, that army of dollar bills, without getting caught up in all this other stuff. Buy target retirement funds. Buy the index funds. So that you don't have to focus all this stuff. I, you know, one of the key things we tell people, Bo, is that really you probably can, you're okay buying target retirement funds and simple index funds till you get to be about two or three hundred thousand dollars in right. assets. And then, by all means, I think that you can start adding that additional alpha or gamma or what other things we were talking about earlier. But you got to have that foundational level of assets so that you can get the, the benefits of compounding interest. So don't lose focus of that because there's a whole industry out there selling you complexity. Don't get caught up in it. I know that we start the show and we, the purpose is very purposeful to talk about rebalancing asset allocation, but so often there's this cousin over here that has such a valuable thing, which is called tax location. We want to make sure you're not forgetting that. Sure. I mean, that's what all this stuff works together, and that's why bringing it back to the rebalancing Don't let somebody sell you on one concept. There's so many people out there that get excited and they share you, sell you on something because their algorithm or their robo system does something daily. And you're like, well, that sounds great. You know, if this is good, then it must be the more of it is must be better. better. And I'm telling you, that's one component of what success in your finances is actually. You need to know something that's 360. It's not mm-hmm. only taking into account the rebalancing. It's not only taking into account the asset allocation. It's taking into account that you actually want to retire at date X, that you actually want to go on this trip with your family on this date, mm-hmm. that you you actually want to go start the venture, you know, a, a, a venture like you want to start a business or you want to go just move in a different direction. All that stuff needs to be interrelated, and that's why I think we love what we do for a living. So hopefully you've enjoyed the content of today's show. I know we got a little in the weeds, but we have to do these shows every now and then. I I get so excited about all the vision shows and trying to get you excited and motivated on saving, but every now and then we need to give you a little bit of that meat so that you have the tools in that, that bat belt of yours to make sure that you're effective with your financial planning. So you're like, you listen to this and you're going, wow, so I found this this show. And they're just giving away this free advice. How is this possible? First, go check us out, moneyguy.com. Make sure you sign up and give us your email address so that we can give you start giving you the free deliverables as well as update you on what's going on. Make sure you subscribe, whether and like and do all the things you need to do on all the social media stuff. But then if you're looking at this and going, 
I can't believe, because we get these emails all the time where people tell us, I've been listening to you guys for 10 years. I've been listening to you guys for 11 years, and you're changing my financial life. You're like, how can you give this away? The reason we can do it is we call it the abundance cycle, is that we give you this gift of free advice with the thought that at some point you go reach the level of success that you need somebody to look over your shoulder, pay us back at that point. If you'll come to us, let us be the one that gives you the thoughts on what to do with your finances. We'll make sure that we That's love right. on you just the same way as a prospect as you are when you're part of the Money Guy family. So love having you guys. Uh, if you have questions, right, because it, we do this for you. I mean, we, yeah. we do it because we love to do it. So even if you didn't listen, we probably still do it because it's a lot of fun. But we do this for you guys. If there are things you want to know, there are two ways that you can that you can get. Actually, there's a couple ways. But the two I'm going to talk about is you can come to one of our live streams, hang out, be in the chat, Ask questions when we turn when we stop recording. We're still going to be here. Do a live Q and A. Yeah, Brian's going to give away some tumblers. Yeah, it's, a lot it's... of you are wondering how you get these live stream. Uh, but we also have a brand new segment. If you have a question, go out to your favorite social. Use the hashtag Ask the Money Guy. Ask us a question. You know, we'll ride around town, answer your question, and then you can always contact us. You can go to moneyguy.com and go to our contact sure. us. You can go to Abound Wealth and contact us. We want to be engaged with you. So please reach out. Let us know your questions. Go sign up uh, for, uh, uh, for the email. You know, give us your email. Moneyguy.com. On moneyguy.com so that we can communicate with you. That's why, that's why we're here together. That's to help each other through that's things. Right. So, guys, thanks so much. I'm your host, Brian Preston, Mr. Bo Hansen. We'll be back soon. The Money Guy podcast is hosted by Brian Preston. Brian Preston is a principal with Abound Wealth Management. Abound Wealth Management is a registered investment advisory firm regulated by the Security and Exchange Commission in accordance and compliance with the securities laws and regulations. Abound Wealth Management does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through the Money Guy podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment or legal advice.